Thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson. Big data may have a negative connotation to many Americans when we're concerned over who might know what about our daily lives. Personal information, your financial state, even your physical location, and of course, that most personal of information about your health. But data is transforming healthcare for the better, making it more targeted to the patient and rooting out inefficiencies. That last part is critical to the United States, who spends more on healthcare, 17% as a share of our GDP, than any other developed nation. I'm really pleased to be joined today by two guests at the forefront of using data to make a better healthcare system for all Americans. Dr. Melissa Clark and Gordon Moore with 3M's Health Information Systems. Dr. Clark is Senior Medical Director for Healthcare Transformation, and Gordon Moore is Senior Medical Director for Population and Payment Solutions. Melissa, Gordon, welcome to 14th and G. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Guys, most folks know 3M for a host of home, office, and industrial products, but not as many are familiar with our health information systems. How does 3M operate in the healthcare space? Dean, back um, in the late 1970s, 3M got into the business of encoding data, which is to take the words that we use in healthcare and to turn them into numbers so that those numbers could be consumed by computers so that we can understand information sets that were just beyond human comprehension. And over time, that business has grown so that, for instance, when a person goes to the hospital, in the old days, we used to have a bill for each Band-Aid, for each IV tube, for each medicine, but that got bundled together into what's called a diagnostic-related group, where there is a set fee for a person who has, for instance, an appendectomy or is in the hospital for a pneumonia. And so 3M is behind the methodologies that are used to, to weight the intensity of work that goes along with certain conditions so that we can pay appropriately and not overpay for stuff that's pretty simple or underpay for things that are pretty complicated. And so that, uh, that data is transmitted from, uh, from the clinic level. It goes where and how, how, do, you, how do you gather that data? The big stream of data that's available right now uh, is sort of imperfect, but it's there. It has to do with when something is done in a medical practice or in a procedure center or hospital, a bill gets sent to the insurance company, and that's called the medical claim. So the claims come along with who, who it is who received the services, what the services were, what the diagnoses were, and that information is rich and useful in terms of understanding what a person needs in terms of medical resources against the illness that they have, for instance, or the illnesses that they have. So we use administrative or claims data for a lot of the work that we do and uh, when it comes to methodologies and thinking about payment and risk adjustment. You know, it seems like we're drowning in data and, and healthcare data is uh, certainly no exception. So what does 3M's health information systems do to make sense of it? I'll take one more piece and then ask Dr. Clark to uh, weigh it as well, because I don't want to hog the whole time here. But the, <laughs> the, you know, we, one of the things that we look at, there are, uh, we use a classification of diagnoses. This International Classification of Diagnoses, or ICD, is in its uh, you know, 10th version, 11th version. We have 70,000 plus different diagnoses. So if I want to say something about diabetes, Diabetes can be diabetes with eye problems, with kidney problems, with nerve problems. 
So there's lots of different types of diabetes, but usually I want to say something about a, a bunch of conditions that roll up under diabetes. And that concept is called grouping. And so what we do with data is to group things into logical bunches so that we can say something meaningful about them. We can say, you know, an adult with type two diabetes, which is the typical diabetes or a child with type one insulin dependent diabetes, we can say something about what their re medical resource use is. We can say something, therefore, when we look at large data sets across the United States or within states, that there's an expected rate of hospitalization or an expected rate at which people end up in the emergency department. And then we can look and see when something different from expected is happening and ask the question, is that difference an example of best practice or is there an opportunity to begin to peel the onion and say, maybe there's an improvement opportunity here. But I would add to that, you know, as we in society are moving from fee for service in healthcare as, as the way that doctors and hospitals get paid when they provide service. And that simply means they get paid for a specific thing that they do. We're now moving to what are called value-based payments, which is based upon the concept of accountability in healthcare. So you get paid for taking care of a patient and for all their associated conditions. And if you do a good job, you, got, you might get paid a little extra. And if you don't do such a great job, you might get paid a little less. And what is a great job? We have to have a definition for what that is. Right. And so um, Gordon mentioned the idea of looking at these groups of data and large groups of payment of, of, of individuals who are grouped similarly. And you can say, based upon this group of people and how complex their medical conditions are, we expect that they would be admitted to the hospital at this rate, or we might expect that they might have this number of complications in their care or this number of readmissions to the hospital. And so we know what the average expected is. So if a provider or a hospital is seeing a variation above that or below that, then their incentives um, or their payments are based upon how well they're managing their population against those benchmarks. So those are some of the things that we at 3MHIS can use the data to help guide programs that are set up to compensate physicians and hospitals for the services that they provide, adjusted based upon the quality of care and other factors that are, are happening. And so that's really determined by, I know, readmissions uh, to, the, to the point of care are big statistic in terms of determining whether a good job or a bad job has been done. What are some of those others, the other indicators of, of, of if the job is being done well? One of the ways that we think about it at, at 3M Health Information Systems is we have a suite of things that are called potentially preventable events. And again, that word potentially is important because we know that, or potentially preventable, because we know that some events are going to happen anyway. People are going to be admitted to the hospital. It just happens. People are going to go to the emergency department. There may be a small baseline rate of complications that happen and also readmissions. So those are some of the ways that we can tell whether a good job is being done or not. 
because they're benchmarks for all those events, um, emergency department usage, ancillary services, uh, which are basically outpatient services, hospital admissions and hospital readmissions. One of the one of the great insights it seems that has come out of this data, and we we hear this term a lot: social determinants of health. And it takes a lot of uh, factors into a patient's from a patient's life that we may not we may not immediately consider in the context of healthcare. What are social determinants of health, and and how do doctors gain insight into a patient's level of social risk? Social determinants of health are, like you said, maybe things that people have not traditionally thought of impacting how well and how healthy a person is, but they have actually 80% um, of how well you are and your health outcomes are dependent on those factors in your living situation and your employment situation that can impact how many resources that you have available to you to stay healthy or the environment in which you live, whether there's clean air or clean water that's available for you to drink, financial resources that have to do with your ability to afford healthy food or to have access to healthcare, or oftentimes the neighborhood in which we live, which determines so many things our access to grocery stores, our access to quality education, our access to transportation, all these things actually impact how healthy we're able to to be. Uh, Another example, just utilities for a diabetic patient. If you don't have the wherewithal to ensure that your insulin is always going to be refrigerated because you're not able to pay your utility bill consistently, that's gonna definitely impact upon whether that insulin remains stable and usable and effective in helping to control your blood sugars. So there are any number of um, factors that impact our health outside the clinical arena. One way that we, you know, sort of the most direct way is to ask patients, what is your social situation? The patient has to be sitting in front of you for that conversation to take place. And oftentimes now with accountable care, with the value-based payments that I mentioned before, patients are not always, the patients that you're responsible for don't always come in to see you. And so there are new ways that we're looking at based upon geographic data, uh, knowing resources and neighborhoods where a person might live that are or are not available to them to be able to make inferences about social needs and social risk. And there's also third-party data that is available that can also be used to look at social risk, uh, again, based upon neighborhoods or based upon individuals. And if I am, if, if I am a patient that perhaps has a high level of social risk uh, based on those geographic or lifestyle factors. What does that mean at the, at the health delivery level? How will, how will that change a course of treatment or, uh, or recommendation from a physician you might be seeing? Well, Dean, Dean, let me give you a simple example of that. So 
we have somebody who's admitted to the hospital with uh, has an appendectomy um, and they are going to be going home with wound care needs and, you know, having to get their guts going again, things like that. Maybe it's simple care. On the other hand, maybe the person is homeless or maybe the person has uh, no family or social support or doesn't have access to, to foods in an easy way. Those two, if, if I've got someone going to one setting where all that stuff is easy for them, uh, it's a very simple discharge plan. If it's not, then it's much more complicated. There are more things that I need to do on the healthcare delivery side to make sure that that person is okay, has the, has the same chances as the first person of, of doing okay on discharge. And so I need to do more work. And one of the things that would be useful is understanding the medical resource needs of doing that work and then having uh, the funds to pay for that. Just like we say, you know, a complicated appendectomy requires more resources. Well, one of the complications is what do we do on discharge? It seems like, so is, is it your sense that American healthcare is moving away from disease focused uh, programs and, and really incorporating more of the social risk into determining a course of care? I think there's a there's absolutely a recognition of the non-medical factors that have have for a long time been recognized as being a factor in terms of a person's health and well-being, as Dr. Clark talked about earlier. I think the um, what's happening is a recognition that if we're trying to reduce per capita expenditures by doing a better job, this is an aspect of what we need to be doing a better job at, which is resourcing the work uh, that's going on. Right now, it's sort of on the shoulders of the clinicians and the nurses and the social workers and others in practice um, to just say, well, just do it because it's the right thing to do. But it gets pretty exhausting to not have the funding to do that work well. You know, you mentioned, Dr. Clark, the normally the patient is sitting in front of you. Uh, many of us have not been sitting in front of one another for quite some time over the course of the pandemic. Uh, there's been more reliance on telehealth and remote delivery of medical services. What have you guys seen over the course of the pandemic, both in changes in, in health writ large uh, and, and the delivery of medical services? So at the beginning of the pandemic, as we might remember, a lot of people were actually afraid to go to their providers because of the concern of getting COVID. And a lot of providers actually shut down and closed their doors because of the uncertainty of how COVID was spread and the risk to themselves and to their patients of congregating. We have long known about telehealth and, and used it on a limited basis, but the reimbursement models didn't really allow for it to be a sustainable way for practitioners to see patients. But with changes um, in Medicare and Medicaid payment options for telehealth that took place on an emergency basis for the pandemic, it opened up a new way for doctors and patients to start interacting with each other on a regular basis. And so we saw a huge increase in people from all demographics. I actually wrote an article with two co-authors on the use of telehealth in underserved communities in federally qualified health centers. And so both teleaudio, so just telephone calls, as well as televideo services went up exponentially. Unfortunately, it didn't do as much as, as was needed 
to offset the delay in people seeking care. So now what we're concerned about are all the undiagnosed, all the screenings that never took place and all the undiagnosed cancers that might be out there, for example, and other chronic diseases that have gone undiagnosed, underdiagnosed, or been undertreated during this time of the pandemic. We know that mental health, due to the high level of isolation that we've had, as well as the traumas that have taken place during the pandemic, um, from loss of life to loss of jobs uh, within family structures, have put an untold amount of mental strain, which is re resulting in mental health conditions. Again, you know, those, those conditions have been undertreated. And so now we in the healthcare community are thinking about ways that we can outreach to people to encourage them to go back to seek care, whether it be in person or whether it be telehealth to get the needed healthcare services um, that have been missed to a large degree during the pandemic. You know, that's something that we've heard a lot about is this concern over uh, undiagnosed conditions due to folks not going in during the pandemic. Are we already seeing that in, in, in terms of uh, diagnosis now, in terms of, in, in terms of morbidity in the population? Is, is that something we're already seeing or does that remain a, a concern going forward? I think it, it's both. We're certainly seeing over the past year and a half a great degree of excess deaths in the population. Not all of those excess deaths are due to COVID. Some of them are due to some of the undiagnosed and undertreated conditions that we've mentioned before. And certainly as the pandemic goes along, we are definitely not out of the pandemic. We're not out of the woods. We are also concerned that that rate will continue to rise over time. Just going back to telehealth for a moment, uh, you know, I guess like a lot of things, we're entering a sort of a brave new world of how we interact with one another, how many of us who are able to do remote work, uh, what that sort of hybrid model uh, is going to look like in the long term. Is telehealth going to be a more common uh, delivery method of, of health services where most people may not go into the doctor's office for, for routine medical care? Uh, or is this going to be more of, a, more of a hybrid model where it's used as needed? Yeah, it's, it's so nice to see that the payment and rules around telemedicine are finally caught up with what actually works really well for people in terms of health outcomes. It's been known in, in uh, randomized controlled trials since back in the 90s and, and earlier. So uh, I think it's sticking around. It's uh, the extremely high rate that we saw during COVID will dip to some extent, but there's so many services that we can be providing that don't require an in-person face-to-face that could be uh, taken care of just by telephone, just by video visit, by other use of technology. So I see that use as being a massive benefit for people, uh, especially as we start thinking about some of the anachronistic rules around how providers can and can't provide services in the telemedicine world. There, I read some articles in the press about families with children with special needs who are getting specialist care from some of the best clinicians in the country because of the now the permission of telemedicine that let them get that kind of care and not have to drive hours and take days out of work. So I see the, the, the desire, the benefit is huge, and it should continue. I'd love to add on to that. We were talking about social determinants of health. 
broadband access and access to devices is a social determinant of health now when you start to think about the ways that technology can be leveraged leverage to deliver health to those who are marginalized and underserved. And so universal broadband access, for example, would be a huge boost to, to many providers and many patients and being able to bridge that gap between needed services and services that are, are not happening and have not happened because of the pandemic. We also, too, still need to keep in mind that there is, as you mentioned, there is going to be a hybrid model. There's still a need to come in and be examined physically, maybe not for many conditions, but certainly for many of the screenings that need to happen, they need to happen in person. And so it's definitely going to be a hybrid um, situation going forward, but keeping in mind that broadband and access and computer literacy and access to devices are one thing that has to be addressed in order for this not to create more of a healthcare disparity situation than there already is. That's such a great point. Um, I guess I'd ask you guys to both to pull back the lens here uh, to a 50,000 foot level. You've both been at this uh, at such a high level for for quite some time. And, you know, we revisit uh, as a policy matter, we revisit healthcare over and over again. Uh, As I mentioned uh, at the start of the program, uh, we spend 17% of our GDP. I think the next uh, closest country is Switzerland at 12%. Uh, we spend so much on healthcare, and and there's a you know there's just a, a broad sense of of a lot of inefficient spending and inefficiencies in the system. What have you guys seen uh, over your time in this field and and seeing all of this aggregate data? Are we trending in the right direction? And and what are some of the things we need to do to to push us into a truly efficient uh, healthcare delivery system? There are a couple of examples that I've seen that are really interesting about trending in the right direction. One thing is to put a uh, put some constraints around medical cost growth over time. So if you look to work in Rhode Island's uh, Massachusetts, some other states right now, they have put out some legislation saying that we want to constrain unbridled cost growth and make it sensible over time. Uh, And to do that, one of the things that's been very evident for a long time is that there needs to be shifting of dollars from, from fixing problems that could have been fixed earlier. In other words, don't wait for things to become a mess and fix it very expensively. Let's put some money into prevention up front and let's work, for instance, to fund the work in primary care so that people can have access, like Dr. Clark talked about, more than just visits, but also in terms of telephone and broadband and devices. Let's make that access ubiquitous. Let's make it easy. Let's get people the care they need early and let's weigh in on prevention. And when parts of the country and parts of the world do that well, healthcare costs are much lower, outcomes are much better, and people are much more satisfied with the care that they get. So those are, those are fantastic services. The reason I'm so enthusiastic about the telemedicine is that if a person can get in touch with a clinician and they can, they can take care of the problem quickly on the phone, well, that obviates the need for a very expensive take time out of work, get the kid from school and go into the emergency department. And I think, too, when we also talk about social determinants of health and prevention, all it starts with access to care. And so 
of course, with uh, changes in policy that have increased access to Medicaid, for example, in certain states, people now are able to interact with their healthcare providers in a way that just isn't there to detect disease, but also to help keep them healthy. Again, it goes even beyond what we're doing in healthcare to look at structural changes within neighborhoods, ensuring that there's there are farmers markets and fresh fruit in grocery stores in neighborhoods that are marginalized, ensuring that individuals uh, have improved health literacy, the ability to understand health-related information and health instructions to best address their health care, that they have transportation to be able to get to their primary care and other specialist visits. And so using the data, back to one of the things that we've talked about before, there's definitely a trend now that health plans and healthcare providers are accountable for the care and the outcomes um, that they provide to say, look, if we want all everybody to have an equal opportunity at living a long and healthy life, these are some things that we have to put into place so that healthcare is available and possible uh, or, or being healthy as possible for as many people as possible. And there's definitely a trend in that direction. And as we continue to move in that direction, putting these programs and resources, resources into place up front, we can then do what Dr. Moore mentioned, which is wait till things get out of control and messy, and then have to spend a lot of money on the back end to try to fix them at, at a high cost. Such great points uh, in such a fascinating field. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time today. Dr. Melissa Clark, Dr. Gordon Moore, thank you so much for joining me on 14th and G. Thanks, Dean. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Dean.